Hey everyone, this week's episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, Ledger, and Our Crowd. Really, really love these companies. Proud to call them sponsors. You're going to be hearing more about them later. But for now, on with the show. Close to 10% of hedge fund assets um, could ultimately be in crypto within the next five years. Binance alone uh, did a $15 million token sale, and the token is now worth $100 billion. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I am joined by the kicker of Hornet's Nest, the starter of companies and the author of books, Mr. Ryan Selkis. What's going on? That's quite the intro. How you doing, man? <laughs> Good to see you. Uh, I mean, my first question to you is just how? <laughs> like, how does this yeah. how does this all get done, the sheer volume? But, uh, you know, as, as I was going through... There's just I, this was actually really hard to prep for because I was like, oh man, this is a really good point. I got to make sure to ask him about this. Oh, this is actually a really good point. Okay, I got to make sure I got enough time for this one. So <laughs> I think the strategy here is just just get through as many uh, of my possible questions as as we can, um, and then just maybe shoot the shit about a couple of things. Uh, but I I you know I love the way that you kick things off here, and I want to spend like a good portion on your big narratives that you kind of see mm -hmm. coming down the pike, uh, and your yep. opener here just like really spoke to me. So. If I could quote you here uh, for a second, you start things off with, why are you reading this? Maybe you're among ha nearly half of millennials and Gen X investors who said it would take a miracle to retire. You're worried about skyrocketing public debt, not so transitory inflation, and what happens when we finally experience a hike in interest rates. For you, crypto is a life raft. This one's really spoke to me, man. So talk to me about this breakdown of institutional trust. Why is that the first big narrative that you kick this thing off with? All right. So be honest, you're just reading this for the first time and that's the first paragraph. So that's why I got it. That's it. <laughs> yeah, I did zero prep for this. I literally just opened it up. I was like, shit, I got to say something. Yeah. Uh, and that'll and now while I answer that, I'll give you, you know, a, a little bit more time to, uh, to, to read some more. Um, no, I think um, uh, it, it, it kind of speaks to the tailwinds uh, right now and, and the, the why now element. I think, um, you know, a lot of the folks that got into crypto early um, we're really here for political reasons, right? Uh, there's a lot of libertarians and, and gold bugs and, you know, um, borderline chicken littles about, you know, government spending and, and you know, the, the decline of state capacity and, and just like government function. Um, and I'm no different, right? Like my first exposure to Bitcoin was um, in the uh, summer of 2011 uh, during the debt sequester, right? Mm -hmm. um, and Unfortunately, I'm not a developer, so I didn't tinker around with it. I, I'd kind of read about it and and then you know, saw that there was no place to get it except for like this crazy Japanese exchange. Um, so I just kind of wrote it off. It was either that or like go to a cafe and, and give someone cash for a USB stick, which kind of felt too, a little too close to a drug deal for me. So um, I ignored it, but then I ended up keeping tabs on it and, and eventually came back to it in 2013 and, and kind of went all the way down in uh, the rabbit hole in 2013. Um, but it, to a certain extent, I think... Um, We've just seen uh, a number of like cascading failures uh, at the state level, right? Uh, state being the nation state level and, and between, um, you know, like mainstream media, the fourth estate and, and obviously, you know, just the, the, the rest of the government. Uh, confidence is in, in many respects at an all time low. Um, and if it's not at an all time low, uh, you know, it, it kind of seesaws between like all time low for like the losing party. And then like some normal amount of confidence in, in the government for the winning party. And, and that's not sustainable either. So um, I think uh, we're starting to come back uh, to a point where uh, crypto for political reasons and, and, and like a life raft against like dysfunctional nation states is back in vogue. I think the difference is in 2013, 
it was like a libertarian party. Mm-hmm. And in 2021, it's much more bipartisan where people are looking at this and saying, you know, this has great like tailwinds because the state is dysfunctional and it's got all this cool tech that you can build around. And, you know, it's like a, a, a bet on future generations and, and digitization of the world and so on and so forth. So um, there's uh, to, to a certain extent, it's kind of like a return, but at like a hundred or a thousand X magnification of, of the thesis that drove a lot of people early on. It just so happens that thesis is more mainstream now. Yeah, I I really love the way you frame this because I it's kind of the, the lens that I look at the space through. And if you call it whatever narrative you want, call it the fourth turning, the failure of institutions, whatever it is, mm-hmm. I think you can look at crypto as kind of a pushback or direct response to failures that I think especially probably young people see um, across a whole swath of different institutions today. So let's let's maybe game that out in terms of how you play that from an investment perspective, because maybe the first big failure of institutions was on the financial side of things. And the direct response to that was Bitcoin, right? So that's the narrative that we're all very familiar with in terms of, uh, you know, bank failures, money printing, and then you get Bitcoin, this very uh, scarce sound source of, of money. You spent a lot of time, just to prove to you that I actually did read this, uh, in, in the rest of your theses, talking about things like Web3, uh, nifties, DAOs, and bridges, and some of these other things, right? So how connect the dots with me between failing institutions, maybe it's media, maybe it's education, maybe it's on the corporate side of things, and some of these new innovations that we're going to be getting into uh, later on in this discussion. The, the big theme that, and, and I don't know exactly why it's happening all of a sudden. I mean, part of it is because you know, the internet's ubiquitous and you're seeing like more uh, like decentralized communities in, in terms of social media. I kind of feel like, you know, web two and social media was kind of the necessary bridge um, to, to get um, the world and, and society just acclimated to, um, to, to community governed systems. So um, to me, uh, I, I think that everything is kind of hitting at the same time, right? You've got um, big tech companies that, because their monopolies are you know, starting to um, become views, viewed with skepticism um, because they're disrupting so many legacy businesses on the one hand, and on the other hand, like they're just monetizing their end users. Um, mm-hmm. And now the question is, you know, is is big tech actually good for you? Like, what are some of the negative consequences? So, um, so trust in, in kind of big tech has gone down. Um, you know, we already talked about the government. Um, I think, you know, uh, media has already been disrupted by um, distributed media. So, you know, that that's not necessarily social media, but it's like the long tail of media that's now, you know, got you know, fat tail incentives. Um, individual contributors that are, are kind of creating their own sub stacks and making an order of magnitude more than they did at their publication, for instance. Um, so um, basically everywhere you look, um, same is true in science. The same is true, uh, like uh, around COVID. Uh, I think entertainment, right? You look at the um, at the the tick rates of like Hollywood and the music industry, you know, versus what happened in gaming when they actually, you know, kind of pivoted and, and lean into like the internet models. Yep. Everything now is starting to look obvious to to mainstream audiences. Uh, and um, I make a comment kind of somewhere in the um, in the document that that's essentially like. Once you get a taste of like token uh, incentives and like user incentives, um, you, you start to like view new products differently, right? Especially if you're like an early u- user to a product or like you, you know a company that just raised like a series A and like you're one of the, the early like net promoters. I'll give you an example. Like, and and I, I'm, I'm picking on them because it's it's probably the least crypto viable company or whatever, but um, maybe, well, maybe not. But um, uh, 
like I use a product and I promote it because I love it, but this this thing called Fight Camp. It's basically like this freestanding like heavy bag and it's like Peloton for boxing. It's like saved my life because um, it's, um, you know, during the pandemic, I, I, that was my preferred workout. You can't really do it. And I finally got this thing. It's, it's been awesome. Um, but they've also raised a ton of money and I've been like a net promoter of them for, for, for like a year. And, and I know that that's kind of driven, you know, some volume and I probably would do more if I had some like actual economics. Right. Mm. Um, and it doesn't make sense, you know, to like have me as a advisor necessarily, because I'm, I'm just like a, a user that has like a medium sized following for them. But um, with like a token model, um, you would have a pool for people exactly like me. And I'd probably be making a decent amount of money just just as like a, a net promoter as their stock continues to rise, as their you know kind of community um, incentives continue to rise. Um, you know, this and this isn't unique to me, right? Like the, this is like massive. Um, massive issue with uh like gig economy workers and you know uh uber and and airbnb and and, and all these you know yeah. big marketplaces wanted to do this but our securities laws hold companies back from 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 doing this so i think um users are going to start to be you know they're they're going to basically start to have the um uh kind of look around and say like what the fuck like why i'm like i'm helping you bootstrap this network you're ultimately monetizing me you know, why uh, Why aren't kind of things a little bit more evenly split, whether they're a creator, you know, a net promoter. Um, so in like a really cynical uh, dystopian view, I guess crypto is going to make everybody a multi-level marketer. Um, but, uh, you know, you take the good with the bad, I guess. God, we, that's exactly the PR that we needed. Uh, excellent job. <laughs> I'm glad we got yeah. that meme out into the world. Um, all right, so I want to actually ask you then maybe that, that kind of second. Well, it's actually it's actually uh, I'm I'm kidding, but it's actually marginally better because you're not actually a multi-level marketer where you're like stuffing a bunch of physical inventory down the throats of people like lower down the totem pole. You're literally, you know, it's it's all digital incentives, digital goods, and and, and whatnot. So anyway, yeah, I, I don't want to totally blow up his spot, but the next time you see Jason in person, ask him about Veeam, his days at Veeam, that that or Verve, Verve, uh, that will lead to an interesting conversation. Um, so, uh, but that actually does kind of segue in, into this next prediction of yours, which was, uh, you know, Web3 is inevitable. And specifically, you know, you kind of said that in 2030, Web3 is going to grow an order of magnitude. Uh, I kind of have my own mm -hmm. thoughts and frameworks for how large this space can be. But Web3 is kind of like taking over, it's kind of usurped crypto as the new branding for our entire space in general. So maybe mm -hmm. I thought it could be useful, like, how do you define Web3, and when you say it's going to grow in order of magnitude, do you have any more specific thoughts about how it could look, this whole space could look differently 10 years from now than it does today? I mean, I should start by saying, I don't know how everybody's going to come up with their own definitions, and maybe there's some people that will try to like make Web3 and crypto like different. Um, I actually think they're the exact same thing. I think that Web3 is just a marginally better framing um, mm -hmm. and a little bit more um, appealing to end users that have had a negative reaction for one reason or, or another to like the term crypto because it sounds scary or it's you know kind of has like baggage associated with regulation or, or, or whatnot so it's a little bit of a, a rebranding exercise and, and i think it's actually a pretty smart one because um nfts don't really feel like crypto to a lot of people right people think mm -hmm. about crypto they think about like you know the volatility of bitcoin the, the volatility of icos and um and with nfts it's like you know these are cool like digital art pieces and yeah, I buy them, sell them and, and, you know, they're collectibles and, and they go up and down in value, but it's not, um, it's a little bit more individual centered, 
right? Um, versus, uh, you know, kind of tribe centered with, um, with, with some of the early currencies. And um, I think uh, uh, just thinking about like, okay, web one was read, web two was like read, write, web three was, you know, read, write, own, which is um, uh, something a, a couple people have quipped, including um, Ashid on our team. I, I think, um, I think that's like a good logical progression versus like crypto is something totally out of left field. Um, yeah. And it's really just about about money. So uh, to me, like Web3 is like an all-encompassing term that covers the cryptocurrencies, like the layer one systems like Ethereum that are kind of moving, um, you know, different smart contracts and, and moving different assets around for settlement. Um, it covers uh, NFTs, like the non-fungible elements, the other ERC-20s, which could be anything like distributed hardware resources or, you know, uh, securities tokens or, you know, the whole, whole kind of slew of, uh, of things that you could add. And then there's, um, then there's DAOs, which are basically like how are these systems governed and, and then DeFi, which is how, um, how does the system have uh, requisite like liquidity to actually function as a parallel economy. So like all those, like five, those five or six different pillars um, can, can all be thought of as like subsets for Web3. So a couple more specific questions for you there. I guess one, uh, and I'd love to get your thoughts on how you see this playing out specifically next year, right? So one big narrative that's kind of playing out is these, let's call them layer one wars, right? But it's uh, the way it's sort of playing out is like the ETH and the strong community that they've kind of built and their scaling plan for layer twos built on top of Ethereum versus kind of some of these new upstarts, right? In the form of Solana, Avalanche, the Terra ecosystem, whatever it is, take your pick. Um, how do you kind of see, do you see a those two different groups as being competitive? Are you a believer in the multi-chain world? Do you think it's all going to be built on ETH and they're going to scale that way? I mean, what are your general opinions on this kind of narrative that's playing out in real time right now? Um, I don't think that, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that there's going to be um, uh, kind of a multi-chain future. And, and even like Ethereum is multi-chain, right? Like uh, you know, the, the, the roll-up um, centric view of, of Ethereum and, and kind of using the beacon chain or kind of the base chain of Ethereum as a, as a settlement layer, um, like that's already baked into the the goals of, of uh, the system. And, and, you know, if you think about Polkadot or you think about Cosmos, they're kind of structurally uh, similar where you've got these um, these hubs or these parachains or, you know, uh, kind of master chains that are, are working as settlement layers for a universe of blockchains um, that can be custom fit for, for different purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the bigger question is, um, how many uh, different chains, how many different standards will we have? So there's basically like EVM compatibility and then everything else. So, um, you know, is, is everything going to be compatible with the Ethereum virtual machine? No, not necessarily, right? Because you're going to have Bitcoin and you might have something like Solana, um, maybe a couple of others. But I think at the end of the day, you know, things probably coalesce around a couple of different standards. Um with you know EVM compatibility probably um, persisting you know, forever, right? That that seems like one of the uh, standards that is is not going away. And then you know it's really just um, like uh, iOS versus Android. You know, are, there's going to be maybe two or, or at most three different operating systems that um, that people build on top of, and and you know that's going to take years and years to play out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, it, it is it is funny to point out, and even I know Bankless got some shout outs uh, in that <laughs> in your thesis. Um, and I it's funny, I've listened to David make this exact argument where he has even a 
clever little phrase for it, but you know, a lot of the criticisms that get levied at these alternative layer ones were in turn levied at Ethereum by you know folks in the Bitcoin community in general. And mm-hmm. I'm not one of these people that's so smart that I, you know, I, I know the future, or I, I wouldn't even be able to make bets uh, in, in one way or another. But I do think there's a certain level of irony to this whole saga that's playing out right now because a lot of what Ethereans got criticized for, they're now they're now like taking that and dumping that on other ecosystems, which I personally find counterproductive. But what do I know? Yeah, um, I, you know, uh, so this goes to like, you know, uh, uh, Suzu's uh, comments on um, uh, on Ethereum and like abandoning uh, the, the chain and, and, and all that. And, um, you know, I, uh, I think it's probably uh, extreme language that was used, um, mm-hmm. but the broader point that I think he was making um, was no one gives a shit out of the newcomers like that you bought Ethereum like a hundred X ago, (laughs) you know, like they, they want to be able to use the blockchain and right now Ethereum is basically unusable. So there's a lot of infrastructure and yeah, that's a big theme for next year is, um, uh, you know, uh, not, not just scaling, but, um, interoperability and, and, and the bridges between different chains, right? So mm-hmm. it's one thing to have like layer two chains available for different applications on Ethereum. It's an entirely different issue to actually have chains that talk to each other and are like seamless from, from an end user perspective. So um, you could have things like Solana or Avalanche or you know uh, some kind of up and coming chains that, that do siphon off some market share for no other reason than, than they are simply faster and more scalable. Yes, more centralized probably, but you know, still more scalable in the near term. And with gas fees costing you, you know, anywhere between like 30 to a, you know, a couple hundred bucks, who cares? You know, um, there's no one is going to sign up for Ethereum versus uh, Solana if they're a newcomer with a couple hundred bucks to, to play around and experiment with these uh, new applications because you, you can't even do a single application. Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, the leading prime brokerage solution for all things digital assets, providing secure custody, trading, and financing to an institutional suite of clients. On the retail side of things, I am more than happy to make this endorsement because I have been a customer of Coinbase since the day that I got into crypto. I still keep the vast majority of my assets there, actually, and I do it for one reason and one reason alone, so that I can sleep easy at night knowing that my funds are safe. It's the same reason when family or friends ask me, where should I buy my first Bitcoin? I direct them to Coinbase. And now, finally, when institutions are starting to ask, what's the most safe infrastructure to use? I only point them in one direction, to Coinbase Prime. And the reason that I do that is because it is peace of mind. When it comes to security, Everything is top of the line on this platform, and it's a white glove experience to boot. They've been securing client assets at scale for eight years, which as of Q2 of this year is $180 billion. They have an industry-leading insurance policy, and they're audited by Blue Chip auditors so that you can sleep easy at night too. So stop listening to me, click the link at this bottom of this episode, and go check them out for yourself. And when you get there, tell them that I sent you because I love to get credit. So... I have a question for you on that. I forget the way you actually phrased it in one of your narratives, but it's basically the idea of sector diversification in general. And mm-hmm. maybe, you know, one thing. Yeah, right. Uh, so maybe we're maybe we're at this phase now where like even you could actually make a pretty solid argument that for blue chip DeFi, that's been in a bear market for a period mm-hmm. of time. And Bitcoin, it's certainly not in a bear market, but it's, it's traded 
sideways, right? Basically, since it's that top that it made in May, uh, while you've had other sectors like Metaverse most recently, you know, those things are just screaming along. Mm -hmm. So, and obviously the the alt L1s have done really well recently as well. So, you know, part of me hears that and it's like, yeah, you know, this stuff does way more than the ICOs did uh, back in 2017. But then another little part of me is like, do they really do that much more? <laughs> like, like there is some basic functionality there, but do they really do that much more? Like, do they deserve $40 billion valuations? I just don't know. And, you know, it is funny. Like, when you talk to people that moved into this ecosystem, I was joking before, you know, when you talk to people that started in crypto in 2020, 2021, they're like, well, yeah, you know, we had that bear earlier this year. It's like, that is not a bear market. You know, a bear market is soul crushing where you question your existence and your decision to move into this industry and you ask God, uh, you know, why you're so stupid. So I, I, I don't know. Part of me thinks maybe we are seeing sector diversification and things are going to be a little different this time because we're way different from where we were. But part of me says, you know, in a market of fear, I think a lot of this stuff just goes down uh, together. So I don't know what your thoughts are there. I think um, that's true to a certain extent. The, one of the primary differences this time around is valuations might correct, but I don't think activity subsides. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and that's important, right? Because um, from a sustainability standpoint, there's never been more capital backstock, uh, backstopping the ecosystem. Um, a lot of the high valuations in non-Bitcoin assets uh, or non-Ethereum assets are the result of Bitcoin and Ethereum related wealth, right? Mm -hmm. um, so those inflows are coming from somewhere and, and um, typically, you know, capital comes, you know, in, uh, things go up and uh, and then people kind of trickle down, but the capital doesn't necessarily come out of the system. Um, even when people are kind of taking cash out, uh, very often they're, they're taking it in stable coins, right? Versus like taking it back into their, um, into their kind of real world savings. So, um and there are tax reasons to do that and, and you know, the, the, the like. So I think um, I, uh, I I do believe that we've already seen, and this is something we've been talking about for years at, uh, at Masari, you know, like uh, the, the 2017, like everything is a payment token thesis was, was completely stupid. But um, the SEC to a certain extent is responsible for some of that because um, you have to essentially um, de-securitize some of the interesting elements that you could have in, in some of these, you know, valueless government, governance tokens. Um, I think if you're contributing to a DAO and, and, and you own a piece of, of one of these networks, it's basically like being a member in a cooperative, whether that's like an insurance mutual or a cooperative like REI, like it's user owned. So, um, you know, should REI be uh, delivering proxy statements to everyone that gets a receipt because they shop there? You know, like I, 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 I think um, that's what we're talking about um, to a certain extent. And, and, uh, and I don't know, REI's like specific use case is kind of besides the, the, the point. Like, I don't know how they, they deal with all that. But um, I, I think the, the reality is uh, the, the rules that we're working with for, you know, large chunks, of, uh, you know, a, a high percentage of the different sectors um, are, uh, are basically um, they're encumbered by retroactive compliance with 80-year-old, 90-year-old securities law that doesn't really apply to some of these new networks. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, 
I actually, you know, on that idea of, I, I really like the way that you actually phrased this uh, as one of your narratives, which is permanent capital coming into the space. So back in 2017, there actually was a tremendous amount of capital that got raised, but it was raised in the form of Bitcoin and ETH, right? Primarily for ICOs. You definitely did have some venture investment coming in at that time too. But, you know, I, I remember re reading you saying that, you know, DCG in 2015 raised $25 million and that was like one of the largest funds uh, you know, ever at the time. And, you know, it's just hard not to pay attention. We cover the news and, you know, you're seeing, you know, $500 million raised from copper and $400 million raised from fireblocks and 750 for Celsius and 725 for Forte. It's just the, the, the amount of capital here that's being raised is just colossal. And I have to imagine that part of the reason why that is, is everyone, it's a land grab, but I, I would imagine part of it's to survive the next bear market. So how, how much of a difference do you think this this particular form of VC capital is like, is it different this time? Uh, you know, is is it going to be more permanent capital? Um, or I guess the counter narrative being VC funding tends to call park market tops because VCs chase just like everyone else. So curious to get your thoughts there. Um, I still think that there's going to be a lot of dry powder in these funds, mm -hmm. um, and uh, there's going to be a lot of dry powder in the crypto funds. There's also um, you know something like. Uh, close to 10% of hedge fund assets um, could ultimately be in crypto within the next five years, right? Like there, there are big inflows coming from like newly formed dedicated funds and also like pockets of, of you know, institutional funds. Um, perfect example is, is you know, uh, from the let our series A, 0.72, right? Like they're, right. they're getting much more active in crypto. They've made a, a, several investments. I think we were there first, um, at least by a few weeks. Um, and they've been pretty active, you know, throughout the rest of this year. And, and I, you know, I co-invest with them and a lot of the things that they do. But, um, you know, they have a dedicated team now that's focused on on crypto, and that's a kind of a, a pretty uh, rigid, well well compliance um, like legacy you know, venture shop and and, and you know uh, uh, hedge fund. So, I think um, as more like fintech oriented investors like that come into the market, the line is going to become increasingly blurry because uh, it's just like, you know, there's there's no longer any uh, internet uh, related funds. Um, everything is, is basically, you just call them venture funds now and, and most of their investments are in, uh, are in internet related uh, stocks. And this is true, by the way, like even when I started in venture capital in, in, in 2008, you know, kind of right, at, right out of school, I, I, I worked at a, a VC called, called Summit Partners and uh, I think there was like five different um, verticals. You know, we had healthcare practice, um, uh, software, uh, uh, financial services, and uh, like consumer. Right but now, all those are just like tech. <laughs> right. You know, right. Um, for, for yeah. the most part, or like a, a good chunk of them are, are tech or tech enabled. Um, but uh, I, I think the same is going to be true with crypto over time. When it comes to crypto, security and custody is paramount. Introducing this episode's sponsor, Ledger, your secure gateway to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto assets. I know I've got a smart audience, so I'm assuming slash hoping that most of you already have your Ledger hardware wallet, but just in case you don't, this is how I think about it. I wouldn't get into a car if I couldn't wear a seatbelt, and I don't operate in crypto unless I can do it for my Ledger hardware wallet. Crypto is really exciting, but it is still the Wild West. There are lots of risks, and Ledger is the easiest way to make sure that you are still protected. And the best part about Ledger is that you don't need to make any trade-offs between security of your funds and utility of your assets because Ledger has 
Ledger Live, which is a software that syncs right up to your Ledger hardware wallet, and you can do anything that you'd want to do with your crypto assets. You can easily send and receive, you can buy and exchange, and you can get access to staking. And they've actually started to aggregate some of the best DeFi apps and services out there. Two of my favorites, Paraswap, a decentralized aggregator, and they've got Lido for staking. And stay tuned, I'm going to keep you guys updated. They've got some really cool services uh, coming out soon. Ave, Compound, and One Inch among them. So if you take one thing away from this, guys, please, please, please make sure that you're protected in this space. Get yourself a Ledger hardware wallet today and start using the Ledger Live app. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Thank me later. All around the world, tech companies are innovating and driving returns for investors. Our crowd takes a global bird's eye view of private markets and brings the companies with the greatest growth potential to you to invest in. One of my favorite quotes from Jim Bianco is when he says, I hate it when people tell me to invest like Warren Buffett. I wish I could invest like that guy. He sees all the best deals. Well, our crowd is addressing exactly that issue by bringing private companies to you when you can take advantage of them, i.e. when they're still early. Our crowd's accredited investors have already invested over $1 billion in growing tech companies, and many have benefited from the 46 uh, IPOs or otherwise sale exits that they've experienced on the platform. Join the fastest growing venture capital investment community at ourcrowd.com slash OTM. Again, that is ourcrowd.com slash OTM. If you take one thing away from this, be it that you should include OTM when you join our crowd. We'll see you soon. I, I tend to agree with you. Same thing. Um, so I've got uh, a, a couple more questions. So we, we skipped one of your, your nifties, um, bridges and DAOs, and I want to get your thoughts there. And this is where I'm going to draw a little bit on some of the stuff that you wrote later on. Uh, and again, I'll just <laughs> use this time to, guys, uh, if you want the full detail here, I'm trying to give the best summary that I possibly can uh, from my own lens of, lens of interest for what Ryan wrote about. But there's a tremendous amount of information in here, so I highly recommend you go read it for the full, uh, full yourself. And maybe we can link it in the show notes here. Um, Great. Bridges, Nifties, and DAOs. Uh, talk to me a little bit about, well, let me ask you first about what are your thoughts on just the NFT market in general? I know you got a whole section there, uh, but what mm-hmm. are your thoughts on NFTs in general? Uh, and maybe I could kick it off with you. You said that uh, NFTs were kind of the ICOs of this particular run. I actually agree with you there. I've got my own little pet theory for uh, NFTs, but walk me through why they got included in this big narrative, what your thoughts on them, like the rise of NFTs are in general. So um, I should clarify that when I call them like the ICOs of this cycle, um, that's not um, that's not a disparagement, right? Um, I, I think there's a lot of folks that are critics uh, of, of NFTs that are, are like, oh, this is, this is basically ICOs all over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and they think they're making some like poignant like criticism and, and like, oh, we've seen this movie before and it's going to end in tears. Um, and it's actually a, a really dumb criticism because um, Binance alone uh, did a $15 million token sale and the token is now worth $100 billion. So there was, there was 20 billion or so that was raised via token sales uh, in kind of that last cycle using like the most aggressive uh, assumptions, including like, you know, the, the full like 4 billion from EOS alone and, and whatnot. So um, Binance alone has returned five times the entire ICO bubble, right? Um, and, uh, and and obviously if you kind of extrapolate that out and you look at Polkadot and Avalanche and Luna and, you know, Solana and, and all the other kind of token sellers, um, as a class, um, they did phenomenally well, 
Um, and even for retail, right? You know, you talk about like VCs getting in early or getting these sweetheart deals. Even if you were late and you only invested like after they launched publicly, obviously they've they've gone vertical. Um, Solana is something like a thousand X for the early crowd sale participants in CoinList. Um, Terra, you know, a couple hundred X since last summer. Um, you know, they're uh, Polygon and Matic, same thing. You know, so, so um, and that's just like the layer ones. And then obviously there's all the stuff in DeFi and, and, and whatnot. We've seen similar uh, dynamics in the NFT market. But when I say they're like ICOs, um, what I mean is the whole class, uh, I think, is going to grow 100x over the course of the next you know, five, six years um, uh, or five, five to 10 years. Uh, there's another asset uh, that also grew 100x in that 10-year uh, period, and that's Bitcoin. So if you look at you know, Bitcoin from uh, you know, kind of late 2013 to today, um, it's literally gone from 10 billion to over a trillion dollars in value. Mm. Uh, back in 2013, you know, that was considered a bubble and, and uh, you know, people like kind of cried about the, the fallout, you know, in the, in the bear market afterwards, which was pretty severe and, and, and almost wiped some companies out. But if you think about like digital gold versus gold and how much market share Bitcoin ate over the, the course of the, the last, you know, 10 years, um, it's basically, I think, um, very similar to where NFTs are today um, versus where Bitcoin was at the blow off top in 2013. Right. So um, even at that height in 2013, the market cap for Bitcoin was around like 10 or 11 billion. And, and of course, we're at like 10 or 11 trillion in, in terms of gold um, today. Digital art is the exact same thing. It's one percent of, of the physical art market. And so, you know, you're going to have like, a, or sorry, one-tenth of, of 1% of the physical art market. So you're going to have some like similar like 100x potential for NFTs as a class. The difference, of course, is like ICOs, 99% of them are going to be like very wildly overpriced JPEGs um, because there is no cap on you know, the number of, of units or, or the number of different types of, of NFT experiments that can be run um, by design. Right. So you're going to have to look at each individual project on its own merits and figure out like whether there's something you know real there for art. That's going to be its rarity or you know its, its uniqueness or kind of intrinsic value. Um, and uh, and then, you know, at the other kind of extreme end, you're going to have NFTs that are, are like real world interest in something. So your property is an NFT uh, stocks or are, are, are NFTs. So, so you know, digital securities, I think, will ultimately use that same standard and then everywhere in between. Um, you know, there, there are going to be uh, a number of innovations that have to happen kind of sequentially in, in, in order for them to be you know, interesting. So securities probably come last, uh, collectibles and JPEGs come first. The question is, what's next? Um, and I think you, you kind of alluded to it. it the, the answer might be um, VR and gaming um, in terms of what comes next, because that that's where there's kind of the cleanest overlap between the early experiments we're seeing today and like mass market appeal um, for uh, for digital goods. Yeah, I think anyone that was a big enough nerd uh, when they were in like seventh or eighth grade inherently gets the the appeal to gaming NFTs. Um, mm -hmm. I've told this anecdote on this podcast way too many times already. I collected skulls when I played Halo in seventh grade just so I could get a new set of armor. I probably put 60 hours into that, got got nothing out of it other than my three friends who came regularly over to my house saw it and we were like yeah. sick. So I, I totally yeah. understand the value that gets placed on that kind of stuff. It like intuitively just makes a lot of sense to me. So 
mm-hmm. you know, my, and I, I didn't also mean to, you know, FUD NFTs. I, NFTs also, you know, it, it is funny because I, I came in later than you. I came in 2017 and two of the big narratives that were going on around then were, you know, there was like DeFi, NFTs, and DAOs, right? So DeFi obviously happened first. NFTs happened. DAOs are kind of playing out currently. Um, NFTs, I think the reason why I think they're similar to ICOs is actually the funding mechanism, how, like, the, what drives their prices, because ICOs get a really bad name. They were directionally correct, right? They, you were, like, seeing the shitty first iteration of bootstrapping a network by selling ownership in that network. Hugely directionally correct. And I think DeFi borrowed properties there, NFT borrowed, NFTs borrowed properties there. But what happened with ICOs is that Bitcoin and ETH, the value of those things went up, and that created essentially insane money delusion, money illusion, right? And people just chucked. They would never have invested $100,000 in an ICO, but I'll invest like a couple Bitcoin, whatever, because uh, I've got so many Bitcoin now. Um, and I think a similar dynamic there kind of is playing out with ETH. Uh, and or Sorry, with uh, NFTs, because ETH goes up, Everyone feels wealthy there. Like, oh, I, you know, you hear these anecdotes. Like, I hate seeing the sticker price, right, on OpenSea. Like, I just want to see it in ETH terms. Otherwise, I would never actually buy any of these things. Um, so I do worry. I, the one thing I do worry about, and you called out the financialization of NFTs as a big trend. And, uh, you know, I think if people ever find out a way to take out leverage uh, on their NFTs in general, I think that's a little worrisome because that provides the illusion of liquidity around assets that are pretty illiquid in general. Um, but I, I think you're absolutely right. I think... I have a ton of faith in, in NFTs in general. I think um, I'm, I think I'm actually kind of personally hoping for a bit of a bear market in them because I feel bad that I missed out and I want to get some of these things. I want to be in the clubs too. You know, I want to be in these cool NFT clubs. Uh, I'm not in any of these things. So um, yeah, I don't know. That's my rant about NFTs in general. Um, talk to me a little bit about... So- Oh, yeah, yeah, so there, there, there's, yeah, there's a couple of things I touch on there. I mean, one, I think we're already starting to see some liquidity and, and some fractionalization of, of NFTs, which is which is a good thing, right? Um, I think the bad thing is if you try to um, borrow against uh, NFTs today, kind of blindly, um, mm. then you're you're borrowing against error because there's there's no price support because you know, by definition the market's not that that liquid. Um, but I think that's an important part, like the securitization of, of NFTs and and you know creating a more liquid market. There is is going to be you know, something to watch. Um, I think it's more likely that happens in like metaverse land and property, you know, because it is um, it's spatially scarce. There is no limit to like the design space of like digital art. Um, you know, communities are probably somewhere on the dividing line. You know, do you want to be a punk or board ape or penguin? You know, do you want to be part of that in club? Um, I would argue, though, that um, there may be a shelf life on all but like the real premier um communities and the more interesting communities are going to be the ones that have like earned um nfts and like kind of earned rep components um you know uh, i'm i've been around for a while i'm not going to pay for a punk i'm not going to pay for an ape you know i'm just like i i and and the reason is less um that i don't believe that there's upside there or that i i don't you know fully agree with like the kind of the cultural norm um it's that i just kind of believe that like any group that I'm in, uh, I'm going to earn my way in versus like buy my way in. Um, and I, I actually think that's going to resonate with a lot more people, um, than, you know, we, we currently consider because, um, you know, just because a group gets more valuable doesn't mean that the price should get higher, um, financially, right? Like maybe the, the rep that's required to get into a certain group is higher, but, um, you know, just 
by virtue of being like early doesn't necessarily mean that like you're one of the 10,000 apes or punks. Um, you're going to be higher signal or, or, or more additive to the community as it continues to scale over time and kind of innovate in different areas. Um, so, you know, and and so to um, to that end, like these almost like these early like PFP communities start to look a little bit more like um, large seed sage startups that haven't turned over like their early employees yet. Um, and um, and it's easier to turn over employees when you're, you know, when your 10 person team grows to 100 and five out of the 10 leave because they didn't scale with the rest of the company. Right. It's a hell of a lot more challenging to build like a meritocratic group of people around like a 10,000 person NFT drop. Um, so I think uh, I think the way that some DAOs are thinking about scaling and using NFTs to represent like early interests is actually much more interesting than like a big digital art drop where you're trying to reverse engineer community. Um, so I'm probably I'm probably more bearish um, on uh, on some of these communities than um, than the average person, but um, I, I I think I would compare it maybe most closely to Clubhouse. Um, so the Clubhouse effect is, oh man, I really want I I hope I, someone invites me to Clubhouse, and like I I really hope like I get invited to like this stage or this room or you know, this this that or the other thing, and and you know I might even buy my way in because I've I've got FOMO, and then you're there for a few days and you're like, ah. <laughs> like uh, I, this is a lot of work or I don't like the like, fact that there's no permanence like yeah there's some cool stuff but I'm kind of over it like I used Clubhouse for like a month I haven't touched it since right okay. like I, I don't know about you but I, I feel like a lot of people are in that camp and it's not just because yeah. Twitter spaces took over it's because at some point you realize podcasts are good for a reason because they actually curate information um, yeah. and, uh, and and have like some proof of work that goes into them you know, you mm -hmm. can't just like uh, throw open your phone, you know, disheveled and, and hungover and, and with no prep and actually curate a good conversation or build like a, a good audience. So um, I think everything that's interesting about NFTs and DAOs is um, the there's going to be a lot of curation that needs to happen to, to you know, make the successful communities actually work. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, Ryan, if you manage to scale a 100 person team and only turn over five people, please tell me your secret <laughs> because uh, that's pretty amazing turnover, right? Um, and we're up to 60 now. And I was, I was actually, it's funny, I was looking at this the other day because um, earlier in the year, um, we were at 15. Um, I think we were at like 15 with like 15 departures, but, um, but none of them were like, you know, uh, accidental or, or, you know, it's, it's just like startups are chaos when you're trying to get to product right. market fit. There's, there's, there's going to be a lot of, Folks that like are awesome, and like we've got a really good like alumni network so far that's 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 emerging. But um, yeah, I think um, it's it's really weird to think that like NFT curated communities or like these early DAOs are going to be any any different than like even what I would argue is a pretty functional company because we've scaled well and, and like actually performed. Like that's that's not going to be trivial to replicate um, just because you've got a decentralized community. In Let fact, me ask it's probably going to be harder. Totally agree. So I have been really split on DAOs because I kind of am just watching this intuitively. Something in my gut is just like, I can tell that this is the future, but I've been really mm -hmm. struggling with it because so I, I sat down, Jason and I, we hosted this conference in Bretton Woods earlier this year and we sat down with this guy who's, you know, he's a high up member at a DAO that you probably know the name of. And, you know, I had like a two hour conversation about how does it actually work? How does the structure work? 
And we both walked away with like, this sounds a lot like working at a really early stage company, only kind of shittier. <laughs> and I just, you know, but one thing, so we talked to this guy, uh, Cooper Turley, Cooper Troopa online. He's a big mm-hmm. advocate for DAOs. One of my favorite Twitter handles to say. He's, yeah, he's sick. I asked him, I was like, is ABBA the reference there? A super Trooper? He's like, no, it's something completely different. Uh, that was my bet. I lost the bet. Um, but uh, one thing that really did stick with me, and I, I'm curious to get your perspective as the founder of a company. One thing Jason and I have is uh, it's like an informal brain trust. And when we need to make like a big decision on something that we don't have any priors for, right? Maybe it's like sales comp. Maybe it's like this business versus that business. Maybe it's like I don't under – whatever it is, right? We've got like, okay – uh, all right, you want to ask your dad? All right, I got like one buddy who's done this before, uh, like whatever. And we make like five phone calls to random people and then we like make the decision. And Cooper made this really interesting point where if you start with this community of your thousand users, right, power users for your product, and then you can just, whenever you have a decision, you can just run it by the community, like drop it in, like, hey, let's take a quick vote. What would you guys think? I, that was the first thing where I was like, wow, that actually really, I would pay a lot of money. For that that would be really really useful to me if i could just instantly ask my thousand best customers what they want what direction they would go i was like shit that's actually i had not thought of it like that before i'm curious to get your thoughts like do you think that would be a valuable thing for you at masari uh we have a we have a bunch of ideas around uh community uh <laughs> initiatives that we're, we're gonna we're gonna do in the new year i mean we we already do this to a certain extent with our analyst uh hub you guys have the right? hub it, yeah yeah in, in terms of like scaling that community and, and figuring out how to scale the human capital uh, that's required to just keep up with with information that's coming out from literally a thousand plus projects. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, we have a lot of ideas r- around that. I think um, uh, that is it, it's 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 definitely interesting. And, um, and I think it's underused by companies. Right. So like the, the best case scenario is that you can. Um, at least from my perspective, is that you can run like a holding company and then maybe have different like sub components of the business that or, or certain product lines that are tokenized versus like the entire company per se. Um, so um, you know, we're still thinking about uh, the ramifications of that and, and kind of what, what would make sense for, for us just as a business. But um, I think that there are pros and cons for sure uh, for, for, you know, trying to start a DAO from scratch versus trying to start a um uh, a company from scratch, and and you know Cooper's a, a great example because I think you know to to get that done right, it requires a uh, really like phenomenal community lead, and um, I mean I actually have a, a pretty good comp just like from 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 personal history. You know, uh, Meltem was a colleague um, at Digital Currency Group, and, and basically like you know me me her and Barry were uh, the founding team there that that helped kind of scale the the early. Uh, crew and, and raise that round in 2015 back when it was just a few of us. And of course, like there were the other subsidiaries, but um, I, uh, I, there's no way I could have done like anything that, that Meltem did. I mean, it, just in terms of like connective tissue with like all those like folks in the portfolio and, and, you know, how they would like connect with like the, the internal teams that we had, which are kind of like pods, you know, within the, the DCG uh, universe. Um, I think um, like that was, was, a meaningful driver of like the value of like DCG's company. Um, so I would like take that model. And, and I think you, that is a very obvious um, like foundational role that that's going to need to be part of like any emerging um, 
uh, DAO ecosystem. And I think the challenge for me personally is like I could never do anything that um, like Meltem did or, or anything like Cooper uh, does on a day to day basis. Um, for a whole slew of reasons, uh, one of which is I'm not, I'm not, in many respects, I'm not patient enough, right? So I kind of feel like Masari is going to need to have this like benevolent dictator model where we have like some components that are like truly emergent and like, you know, bottoms up. But um, I think it's, it's going to be, uh, the best companies are going to be those that have a balance between the two. So um, finding that balance is, uh, is, is going to be something that we... Uh, get right and uh and and it'll be a, a work in progress next year yeah um all right i want to ask you about some of the big things big ticket items like bitcoin i want to talk to you get your views on regulation uh, and then i kind of just want to open it up to you and ask like broad questions how is it going to end of 2022 what are the biggest changes that are going to be you know at the end at that period of time versus where we are now you wrote a whole big section on bitcoin uh you got a bunch of stuff in there that i really liked it's going to remain the king um that you talked about the bitcoin etfs like when you look at Bitcoin, the asset, right? What are some of the most important parts that you want to pull out? What should we be looking at for Bitcoin next year? What are your kind of thoughts on it? Um, I'd be very surprised if uh, if Ethereum uh, or any asset flippens Bitcoin. I think that's yep. an overdone um, thesis. Uh, I, yeah, I could be wrong. I, I think uh, it is, though, possible for uh, these smart cl- contract platforms to collectively uh, overtake cryptocurrency, like pure crypto monies, right? So if you look at like Bitcoin and Litecoin and, you know, I mean, basically all the other currencies don't don't even really matter compared to, to Bitcoin. There's such a, a massive chasm between the two. Um, I think the, the differences are much smaller between Ethereum, Solana, Avalanche, right? So like all of Ethereum's competitors, I, I feel like have much closer rivals than, um, than Bitcoin does as like a, a pure play money. So uh, I think that's one really important um Distinction. I also think um, Bitcoin is is basically the only asset that that really has like the the mythical um, origin story that people um, from a regulatory perspective and geopolitical perspective get pretty comfortable um, investing in it and um, mm-hmm. and and actually uh, starting to coalesce around this as like a, a global commodity money, even though it is volatile. And the game theory favors countries like El Salvador and um, and kind of early adopters that are adding this to their treasury. And, um, you know, El Salvador's maybe first if there's another like Ukraine or, or you start to see like a, a country in, in Africa um, do the same thing, then you, you can start to you know, open the floodgates. Um, and I think the same is true with corporate treasuries. Um, everybody kind of looks over their shoulders. There's one kind of crazy person like Sailor that does it or, you know, uh, Bukele um, and... Um, I've never. Uh, I actually don't know if I just butchered his, his pronunciation, his name. Anyway, I've actually uh, the president in, in El Salvador. Right. Um, uh, everybody kind of looks at them like the crazy person, and then uh, and then there's like a second uh, company or a second country that does it, and then a third, and then you know you get momentum and and it just it becomes a groundswell. So I think. Um, it's much more likely that happens with Bitcoin than Ethereum because with Ethereum, you've got all these throughput constraints. You've got this merge and this proof of stake migration that still hasn't happened. So there's there's you know a lot that still has to be de-risked that's not immaterial. Um, and uh, and that's going to play out in, uh, you know, over the course of the next year. Um, as a class, though, you know, could like Solana, Polkadot, Ether, you know, et cetera, like collectively surpass Bitcoin? Maybe, but I still think the odds are, you know, at best 50-50, probably, probably less. Um, I think the, the um, there's kind of two 
uh, final bosses to beat with uh, with Bitcoin. Um, the first is just the um, the energy consumption um, narrative and and mm. and you know kind of the, the debate around uh, Bitcoin's role in in like climate change and uh, just being a contributor to net emissions and and. and I have a pretty lengthy section in, in the report uh, about why that's really overdone. And um, I used to be very skeptical. I thought it was just kind of like, you know, greenwashing and and, uh, and, and kind of stupid PR for us to try to bat, uh, like make uh, make that a point of emphasis in a, in a fight um, that like, no, actually Bitcoin can be clean and you can leverage renewables and it can be like a battery. And you know, there's a bunch of like buzzwords right. that I always thought were kind of bullshit and, and just like us, you know, putting up a relatively weak defense. Um, but um, I actually think that there's some truth to it. And um, I think there's a, a number of folks that have, have you know, kind of converted that were equally skeptical. You know, Nick Carter had a great piece on this um, where, um, no, Bitcoin truly might be able to um, stimulate green energy investments just because of its role in you know, basically serving as a load balancer um, between you know, times of peak demand or as a, um, a siphon of, of, of uh, energy and, and a productive use of, of energy capital um, when new green energy sources are being installed and connected to the grid, right? There's a difference between when you can flip the light switch and when you flip the light switch for one of these green energy sources and it actually connects to the rest of the power grid. So um, I think, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's a lot more to unpack there, but I, um, I think that's one narrative that's going to be batted down, uh, hopefully effectively in the next year. Um, and then, the, you know, the other big risk, um, uh, I, I mean, I suppose like the government's going to shut this down is always a risk, but that seems uh, like, I don't think that the, the, the U S government is competent enough, nor do I think they have the willpower to do that because it would piss so many people off. And I think it's, you know, Bitcoin's gotten too big as an investment to, to actually do that. Something you know, on par with, with, you know, like gold, for instance. Um, so I'd actually say that the, the second big risk is just figuring out um, what happens when the inflation rewards um, get too low. Um, you know, are, 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 is um, mining going to be uh, sufficient to secure the network? Um, and um, are we going to have to have some long-term change to the, the sacrosanct 21 million Bitcoin uh, will only ever be, uh, be issued? And I don't know what the right answer is, but, um, you know, to me, perpetual low inflation is not a bad thing. And there's a big difference between programmatic perpetual inflation that's going to be like governed by energy and like a, a fair race for like a permanent like 1% model. And I think even, you know, um, uh, I'm pretty sure Satoshi even wrote like that, that, you know, he would have. Uh, done this in hindsight, if, um, if if he was thinking about sustainability, um, I know a couple of like early Bitcoiners have talked about it, but um, we'll, uh, we'll we'll see. Uh, I, I I do think there's there's a big difference between one percent inflation and in, in Bitcoin that has like a a cap on uh, on how crazy things can get, and um, and you know kind of the discretionary like target inflation rate, which is you know a, a, a central government. Just pulling all the the interest rate and, uh, and and debt levers that they have at their disposal. I agree with you. Um, you talk a lot on Twitter about uh, regulation in general. Um, one might say you've been needling a little bit, uh, Mr. Gary Gensler, our current SEC chairman. Talk to me a little bit about where you think we are from a regulatory environment. Why do you think it's the right idea to kind of push back instead of maybe uh, I don't know extending the proverbial olive branch, so to speak? Like, what are your general thoughts there? 
there's no olive branch. We will have no peace until Gensler converts or is out of his current position. All right, that's the throw. I'll I'll tell you so. And 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 here's the thing: no one else can say that because everybody is trying to toe the line, and and, and all these other businesses are regulated. I suppose the SEC could come after us and try to make our life miserable, and and it would be um, such a flagrant um, like political attack if they did because we're an information business. Um, so uh, you know, good luck. But look, this is the frustration that everybody's that everybody's talking about behind closed doors. Um, and it comes down to the fact that um, Gensler is not a run-of-the-mill, naive, incompetent political operative. He is a very smart, calculating, productive, um, and knowledgeable insider that knows how crypto works because he taught about it at MIT and knows how the political machine works because you know he was the chair of the CFTC and he's made a fortune in Goldman Sachs. So he's extremely smart, extremely financially savvy, and he knows what crypto is all about. The fact is, he's looking at it as like a chess piece to advance you know, his career ambition to, to get into Treasury. And um, Elizabeth Warren is one of the most influential senators um, on financial services. He needs her as an ally, and she is very anti-crypto. So um, that's the starting point. And what I laid out in the thesis is yeah, there's basically like eight different bits of evidence that would lead you to believe um, as current SEC policy um, at the leadership level is completely ass backwards and, and makes no sense unless you're taking the stance that they're you know, very intentionally trying to curb the growth of this ecosystem because they don't have control over it. This this is a political battle and political battles require political solutions, which um, include courting public opinion. Right. So um, so there's a there's a narrative battle that's uh, at play and and at every opportunity. Um, that, that I see fit, I think it's helpful to remind people that um, the SEC's current policies, uh, which are the result of, of Gensler's direction, because you know the, the buck stops with him, um, the SEC's current policies are are you know hostile for the wrong reasons, and um, they are inconsistent with the commission's mandate, which is to pr- protect investors, promote capital formation, and ensure you know fair, orderly, and efficient markets in the U.S. Um, I don't know anyone in crypto that disagrees with those as like mission statements. Um, yeah. But um, to look at something like you know, the Bitcoin futures ETF with its 5 to 10% hidden costs that ultimately accrue to Wall Street and um, and see its approval, but not a spot ETF approval that would cost less than 1%. Um, it, it, it shows you um, that they're acting in bad faith. Um, and anyone, uh, you know, it, it's there for everybody to see. So um I think um, you know it, it's important to be very targeted, though, right? Uh, and 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 I think um, the SEC makes for um, not the SEC in total, but but Gensler in particular makes for a particularly good villain because he's not incompetent and um, and he is um, is doing things um, that are just they are they're sketchy. You know, Brian Armstrong in a in a moment of uh, of, of honesty that was probably regrettable from a regulated business CEO. Um, he nailed it, right? Like it, it is. It's sketchy behavior. It's it's dishonest, and and um, I'll continue to call it out, even if uh, even if he has to dial it back because uh, the SEC is trying to regulate them and, and slap them with fines and whatnot. So um, you know, uh, we'll, we'll we'll see how it all plays out. Uh, but I've uh, I've not shied away from conflict in the past when it's when you're on the the right side. But like, let's try to transport ourselves one year into the future, right? How is crypto going to look 
differently? Are we all going to be living and operating in the metaverse at that standpoint? Is that the most important thing to pay attention to? Is this like ETH versus L1 wars? Uh, is nobody going to be talking about that a year from now? Or is that really the thing that we got to watch? Like, I don't know. Big, broad, sweeping predictions. Yeah, let's get some let's get some headline stuff here. Uh, you know, how do you think the industry is going to change a year from now? Um, well, I'll probably disappoint people because I think things will cool off, right? Um, and for and for, for no other reason, I think um, it just takes time to build. It takes more time to build than it does to ape and speculate, right? Um, and <laughs> yeah. like things have gotten way way ahead of themselves um, in terms of like the pace, and and it's just it's a pace that's you know, unsustainable, like in the medium to long term. So at some point it's going to have to normalize. And, and depending on like how long you've been in this race, you know, with DeFi summer last summer, and then, you know, kind of rotation into layer ones uh, and, and like the, the big Bitcoin rally at the end of last year, then layer ones or you know, first quarter and then NFTs and their surge. And now you're, you're seeing you know, a surge in the metaverse and, and kind of everything bubbling up again. Um, at some point it's got to quiet down, right? Um, just almost by definition uh, and, and normalized. So, you know, we could continue to go, you know, run really hot and uh, and, and crazy and, and see the pace just uh, can continue unabated for a while. Um, or what I think is more likely is, you know, we'll, we'll see you know, some cooling off um, period and um, something will kind of stop the momentum. Um, odds are uh, the momentum, you know, in DeFi has, um, uh, has, has already been slowed just because of the threat of, of you know, overregulation. Um, I think with um, with some of these other layer ones, it's going to be, you know, it takes some time to actually develop uh, new infrastructure that can support all these new applications, you know, that are, that are kind of riding on top. So even the communities that are scaling really quickly, like Solana, um, it, it doesn't happen overnight, right? Um, uh, Ethereum's got to go through the merge, right? So there, there's, there's a bunch of things that I think um, are kind of happening at the same time and um and the amount of money that was made this year uh there's going to be some pretty massive tax bills that come due um in the u.s in particular so um i would not be surprised if there's some like tax selling in q1 and it always happens it always takes longer to like actually hit um than, uh, than, than you know, people assume. So I would imagine that um, we're going to see uh, some some similar selling pressure uh, in Q1 of this year as people kind of realize just how big their tax bills are. Because you don't really think about it. You're like, yeah, I know I owe taxes. And then you kind of like double check the numbers. You're like, oh, I didn't realize I owe that much in taxes. Um, and that can kind of take on a life of its own. So your predictions are it's going to cool off and people are going to sell because of taxes. You're right. Those are going to be unpopular predictions with this with this crowd, but I fear that you might be right. I think you might be right. At the end of day, you know, the positive silver lining spin on what you just said is that, you know, a lot of people joke, myself included, you're almost weirdly looking forward to the next bear market because there is this like froth and, you know, even just this this idea, this opportunity cost that everyone in this industry just feels all the time. And there are people making tens of millions of dollars, just aping into whatever. And here I am actually trying to build something and taking my time. And what am I doing? And, you know, I, I think all the best businesses, if you rewind to the Masaris of the world, right? Blockworks of the world, they got started in a bear market. Uh, and honestly, they're like all these big infrastructure companies that got built, the Fireblocks, the BlockFi's, um, all those companies, they get built in bear markets in general. It's an entirely different mindset that you take. So I do think it is kind of nature healing itself. It's like 
the fire is burning off the brush, uh, you know, the excessive brush or whatever it is. So silver linings is great companies get built in bear markets. They do in bulls too, but I think more get built in bears. So um, we can end it on a positive note, but um, it's going to be fun. Yeah. yeah Regardless, be, uh, bull, bull market, bear market, it's going to be fun for anyone that's willing to stick around for the long term. I agree. Um, guys, uh, we covered it as best uh, we possibly could today. There is a treasure trove and a wealth of information in this full doc. We will link it in the notes. Uh, really, it was like an unbelievable read. Just, I honestly don't know how you managed to do that running a company. Uh, so my hat is certainly off to you. Um, thanks for coming on the show. If people want to find out more about the work that you do at Masari or follow you on Twitter, what's the best way to do it? Uh, yeah, so uh, masari.io for anyone that wants to download the report. It's front and center on the homepage um, and uh, and will be for, for the next few weeks. Um, I'm at 2BitIdiot, T-W-O, BitIdiot, um, and uh, look forward to continuing the conversation and figuring out uh, where my typos were and what I got wrong from, from the, the, the masses on Twitter. They have a habit of doing that, don't they? Um, I mean, well, thanks very much for coming on. I appreciate it. I'll have to do awesome. it again soon. Thanks, man. Have a good one. Okay.